0: Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 9 where we're continuing our study in this prophecy, this Old Testament book. But we're looking at Zechariah chapter 9 which contains a very famous prophecy of Christ in verses 9 and 10. That prophecy is quoted or alluded to in all four of the gospel accounts of Christ referring to the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. And as I read this chapter to us, remember that it's being spoken to a remnant of Israel that has returned to a ruined Jerusalem after the 70 years of exile. Hear God's word. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place, for the Lord has an eye on mankind and all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah. And Ekron shall be like the Jebusites, then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them for now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south, The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty." Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. When I was a boy, I loved stories about time machines. I remember reading H.G. Wells' book, The Time Machine, and wondering if something like that might ever be possible. Well, if you could somehow go in a time machine back 2,500 years to the time of Zechariah... We've already seen in our series that the people who had returned from exile were called by God to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, the place of God's dwelling. But now, after about 20 years of being back, after the initial enthusiasm of the return to Jerusalem, they were facing real discouragement. Life was hard in the backwater province of Judah. The city was still a pile of ruins with the walls broken down. There was opposition on every side. They they were pressed in by enemies who were stronger and who opposed the work. And the temple that was slowly being built was clearly going to be something less than the temple with its former glory. The complaint of many was reflected in the phrase we saw in chapter 4, verse 10, that it was a day of, of small things. Spiritually, the people were struggling as well. There there was a temptation to see God as absent, to see faithful obedience to the Lord as somewhat useless, and to simply pursue their own self-centered agenda for life. Haggai rebukes them for building their own houses instead of also working on building the temple of the Lord. And in a sense, seeking to eke out some kind of joy and a bit of happiness in life, but instead of seeking their own interests and of turning inward we 've seen the prophet calling the people to return to the Lord, and he will return to them that that though god 's purposes seem hidden, the Lord will again restore and bless Jerusalem as his dwelling place and that that God would trouble the ungodly nations around them who are at rest but give rest to his troubled people. And in addition, the rebuilt temple will be a sign of God's presence among them. And now in chapter 9, we read this amazing promise of this king, of David's line who will come and bring blessing and peace. And we want to focus our study on verses 9 and 10 as this coming king is described, but also look at other parts of the chapter as we fill out this picture of his mighty reign. Our three points will be, first, the king will bring salvation. Secondly, the king will be righteous and humble. And third, the king will rule from sea to sea. And as we look about this prophecy, which is a prophecy about Christ, ask yourself the question, have I truly come to entrust my soul, my life to this righteous, saving, humble king? If it's true, as this passage and really all of Scripture teach, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this, that he is the king of glory, have I given Jesus Christ my life? And is he he really my joy and my hope for all eternity? So let's look first at the king will bring salvation. In verse 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. The city of Jerusalem is here personified as a young woman Woman who is called to rejoice, to shout greatly. Why? Because the king is coming. And he's described as righteous and having salvation. That verb, having salvation, has tremendous meaning. We know that the ultimate fulfillment of that salvation is not a military victory, but it's the eternal salvation that Jesus Christ came to bring, a salvation that involves the forgiveness of all of our sins through his work and the gift of eternal life and and reconciliation with the living God. Later in verse 16, it says, on that day, the Lord their God will save them, there's that word again, as the flock of his people, for like jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. What a beautiful image, like His people who are saved are like jewels of a crown. This salvation is so great that it's like God has made them his precious jewels by his grace. But it's interesting that this verb in verse 9, having salvation, is in the passive voice. That means action that's happening to the speaker, the person himself. That's why it's translated having salvation instead of something like giving salvation, although really both senses of of the verb are there. But that passive voice brings out the sense that there's a sense in which this king receives salvation, or it could be translated having vindication, bearing vindication. And commentators point out that the phrase most likely means that Christ went to the cross but was vindicated by the resurrection. He was, in a sense, saved. As Romans 1, 4 states that Christ Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh, that same idea of being a human being of David's line, although he was God as well. And that it goes on, Paul goes on, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He was vindicated. He had vindication. He was declared to be the Son of God with power. And so he is able to bestow salvation on all who call upon him in simple faith. Look at some of the poetic ways that we see this chapter picture the salvation of God. In verse 11 it says, As for you also because of the blood of the Covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. The waterless pit is a picture of a well without water. The Israelites probably would have immediately thought about Joseph. Remember, his brothers cast him into a pit and then sold him into slavery. It was like a dry well. Or they might have thought of Jeremiah, who was, who was persecuted for his faith by being imprisoned in a, a mucky, miry well. In Jerusalem, the Old Testament often uses the idea of deliverance from a pit to describe the salvation of God and salvation from death itself. Psalm 30, verse 3, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol, signifying death. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. There's that same idea. Or Psalm 40, verses 1 and 2, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock. What an apt picture of the salvation that God gives. Or Psalm 103, verse 4, God who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love, and mercy, So the exiles of Zechariah's day would have considered their years of exile as really a waterless pit experience. But now God has enabled them to return to the land. And notice how the image changes in the next verse, verse 12. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. It's no longer prisoners of the waterless pit. It's prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will return to you double. In, those, in other words, those who are still in exile are called by God to return to their, their stronghold. That is Jerusalem, the stronghold, their city. And then instead of being prisoners of the pit, they become prisoners of hope. And, and God, even beyond that, promises to restore to them double It was said in the Old Testament that God gave them double for their sins when he judged them and took them into exile. Now he's saying like the firstborn son gets a a double share of the inheritance, so I am giving you a double blessing of salvation. A wonderful picture of hope. The king brings salvation. Can you imagine the joy of these exiles of being able to return to their homeland after 70 years of exile, most of them only hearing stories from their parents or their grandparents about what it had been like to dwell in the land, and then for God to bring about the return in history, joy upon joy, even with all the hardships and the sacrifices that were involved. But all of these pictures of salvation from the exile and these other things point to The great salvation that the king himself brings. Deliverance from the pit of death and hell itself. Deliverance from the penalty and the power of sin. So that there is coming a day when each one of us who knows Christ and believes in Christ will forever be done with sin when we see Jesus face to face. A salvation that means restoration of fellowship with God himself in this life and perfectly in the life to come, so that the Lord now tells us he indwells his people both individually and corporately, even as we are the temple of God, we're told. No wonder we can say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Jesus is the king who comes bringing salvation, And it is the gift of God that makes every trouble and every heartache in this life something that we can bear in trust in God. We do that certainly very imperfectly, but even the worst things in this life because because we know that he has given us himself, he has saved us eternally through Christ There's a place where our family hikes in West Texas that everyone calls the water hole. It's this formation in a dry creek bed that's been carved out over the years of water running over it so that even in the driest of years, and we've been out there in some really bone-dry years, there's even water in it then. It's not water you'd want to really touch or anything, but It's there. And none of us have ever seen how deep the water hole goes. We've all talked about bringing scuba gear and get somebody in a wetsuit and send them down there and see how deep it goes. Um, But often teenagers will come out there and jump from the cliffs 20 or 30 feet high and you have to hit just the right spot, that's the deep spot, or you would hurt yourself. But if ever that water hole would completely dry up, it would certainly qualify as a waterless pit. If you were lowered into it and and left there and somebody took the ropes away, you would be in big trouble trying to climb up those steep walls. You would be a prisoner of the waterless pit. Not something we want want to experience. But the Bible tells us that every one of us is by nature under the condemnation of a holy and righteous God because of our sin and our rebellion against him. And you might object, well, I've never really rebelled against God. I'm not sure whether there really is a God or whether the God of the Bible is the true God. But again and again, the Scripture tells us that unless I am loving God with all my heart and soul every day, unless I am joyfully following his moral law and genuinely worshiping and trusting him with every breath that I breathe, then I am in rebellion I might call it indifference, but God calls it unbelief and sin. And so how desperately do we need the gift of salvation? It's like we're in a waterless pit apart from Christ. And so I ask, have you received that free gift of deliverance and salvation through the King of Kings? Well, this brings us to our second point. The King will be righteous and humble again in verse 9. It says that, Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. Righteous and humble. These are not usually the characteristics that we tend to associate with a king. We might expect something more like powerful and mighty or high and exalted. But these these descriptions tell us something about how Jesus brings salvation how he accomplished that we know from the clear fulfillment of this text in Jesus entering Jerusalem to die he had his face set to Jerusalem to die that Jesus came as the pure and spotless lamb of God the the perfectly righteous one the the God man who fully kept the law of God in our place fulfilling all righteousness But the verse also speaks of the king as humble. He comes riding on a donkey. And you probably know that Jesus purposely sent his disciples to get a donkey so he could ride into it. He knew he was fulfilling this very prophecy. Now, in the Old Testament, you might be surprised to know that kings often rode donkeys, but they didn't ride them into battle Christ is riding on a donkey as a sign of his humility. He came the first time to lay down his life to bear sins. He came as a humble sacrifice. In other words, Jesus accomplished salvation, he accomplished victory in an upside down manner. He triumphs through lowliness and sacrifice. Colossians 1.15 says Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's a military term, and that's speaking of Satan and his hosts. He disarmed and put them to open shame, how? By triumphing over them in the cross as he died in ignominy and shame and spit upon and cruelly crucified. It's an incredible truth. No one could ever make that up. No other religion in the world has such a king and savior. Jesus conquered through the humble and shameful death on a cross. Uh, A means of death, by the way, so hideous that it was illegal for a Roman citizen to be put to death on a cross. The king accomplished salvation by his righteousness and his humbleness. And there's this amazing exchange that scripture says takes place that we are given the righteousness of the king, and he takes upon himself our sins as he bears our sins on the cross. An amazing salvation. There's an account of General Ulysses S. Grant coming to Washington, D.C. in the middle of the Civil War to take charge of the entire Union army, a million-man force now. President Lincoln had tried multiple generals and all had failed to break through the crucial state of Virginia. But for two years, Grant had been winning victory after victory in the Western theater of war. So Grant makes the long trip from Tennessee and shows up finally at the Willard Hotel in Washington. Other generals would have been surrounded by a a retinue of aides, with spit and polish befitting their rank. But Grant was not like that. He showed up wearing his old linen Coat, no evidence of his general stars, with mud on his boots, and only his 13 year old son in tow. The clerk at the desk looked down his nose at Grant when he inquired about a room. He said he might have a small room for him on the top floor. Grant said that was fine. The clerk had him sign the ledger, and then the clerk spun the ledger around to look at it, to look at the name that was signed. And Grant had signed it, U.S. Grant and Son. The clerk was so stunned he could hardly speak. All of Washington had been waiting breathlessly for the hero of Vicksburg, the champion of the nation, to arrive and take the helm and end this disastrous war. Of course, suddenly the presidential suite happened to be available. But the point in this illustration is this. Grant had not come to Washington for show. He had not come for the presidential suite. He didn't care about accolades. He knew that a great and terrible job needed to be done, and he was focused like a laser to do it. And if you know your history, you know that he accomplished his goal. Now, Grant was a mere man. The comparison with Christ falls woefully short, Christ was and is the king of kings. And for him to come righteous and humble, focused like a laser on accomplishing salvation, it's a truth that should make each one of us fall on our faces and adore him. Verse 11 says that it's because of the blood of the covenant that the prisoners are set free that's got a lot of references in the Old Testament. This is what it took for Christ to save us and bring us to God. We all broke the covenant. And that required blood, and that means death. And Christ gave his blood. He died in our place. And he had to go so very, very low to do this. The very word of the Father who spoke the stars into existence, who spoke the universe into existence, the king will be righteous and humble as he brings salvation. But finally, we see the king will bring peace and rule from sea to sea. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bows shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth." We look at verse 10 and we ask, why is God getting rid of these weapons of war, the chariot, the war horse, the battle bow? And this isn't that he's getting rid of them from some hostile, ungodly nations. He says he's getting rid of them from Ephraim. That's a tribe. That's one of the main tribes of Israel, from Jerusalem. He's getting rid of them from from Israel. And he's getting rid of them because he doesn't need, the king doesn't need, the typical weapons of war to conquer the world and to spread his rule and to bring peace. That word peace is the word shalom, which many of you know has this rich meaning of blessing. In so many ways, that goes way beyond the meaning of a mere absence of war. Christ the king, verse 10, he shall speak peace to the nations. He simply speaks peace. His word goes out and his rule is extended from sea to sea. It says, from the river to the ends of the earth. The river would have meant the Euphrates. It was one of the four typical boundaries that God uses in describing the promised land. But now, instead of using the other three in describing this land, he simply says, from the river to the ends of the earth, from sea to sea, the whole world. The kingdom of Christ will fill the earth. This chapter, you see, has a powerful combination of pictures of what God has in store for the nations. The coming king is also the divine warrior that we read about as he brings judgment, but the the picture of judgment on the the nations is not all. There, There are surprising twists here because in verse 10, he shall speak peace to the nations. If you skim over verses 1 to 6. I'm not going to read all of them again. And you look at the nations that the Lord is going to bring judgment upon. If you look at a map of the Middle East and of Israel, you can see that he starts north of Israel in Syria, and places in Syria, and then goes down to the coast of the Mediterranean to Tyre and Sidon, and then further down the coast to all the, the, some of the main cities of the Philistines, Philistia. And These all were places and nations that historically were Israel's enemies. And it says that the Lord, the divine warrior, in a sense, is striking them down in judgment. For example, in verses 3 and 4, we have a more detailed description of one of them. Tyre has built herself a, a rampart and has heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. So Tyre... Um, had a walled fortress that they built on an island about a half mile offshore. It was surrounded by a double wall, 150 feet high, with the in-between 25 feet filled with earth. It was thought to be impregnable and These verses allude to the fact that it was a city of great wealth, silver like dust, fine gold like the mud of the street. There's so much gold it's like just sitting on the streets. But verse 4 says that God will judge both her military power and her wealth. He will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea. She shall be devoured by fire. God will judge her. Tyre is representative of, of all the nations in their ungodliness and their pride and idolatry. Apart from the true God, and by the way, you might know that Alexander the Great utterly destroyed Tyre about 200 years after the prophecy here. He did it by, over months, building an entire causeway through the ocean to that island fortress and then destroying it with his armies. But really, the reason I'm saying all this is this is the surprise comes at the end of this description of judgment in verse 7. When we read, God says, I will take away its blood, speaking of Philistia, I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. And those are both referring to unclean, idolatrous practices of the heathen uh, The Israelites were not allowed to to eat or consume the blood with the meat. And um, the abominations between their teeth talked about meat, animals offered to idols. But you think when you get to the middle of verse 7, God will take these away by judgment. But the end of the verse is, it, meaning Philistia, it too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah. In other words, it's going to be like one of the 12 tribes. And then it goes on, And Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Who were the Jebusites? The Jebusites were the the heathen tribe that were dwelling in the area of Jerusalem before David took Jerusalem as his capital city. And the Jebusites were supposed to be eradicated by the conquest under Joshua, but they weren't. And so what happened was eventually they were incorporated with the rest of the population. In a sense, they became Israelites. And it says here, Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. They're going to be incorporated in the people of God. This verse is such a surprise because it concludes this section on judgment on the nations by prophesying amazing redemption, And then in verse 10, he shall speak peace to the nations. It's looking forward to the gospel era of the nations being saved, of a remnant from every tongue and tribe and people coming to God. What's happening? Yes, there's judgment, but there's also redemption through Jesus Christ. It's all fulfilled in Christ as the gospel goes forward into the world. And isn't it interesting that in Revelation chapter 7 when we see the picture of the heavenly, the great multitude that no one can number from every nation and tribe and people and tongue that they are there before the Lamb and what are they holding in their hands? Palm branches. Hearkening back to Palm Sunday. Hosanna. Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the Savior. And that harkens back to Zechariah chapter 9 when this was prophesied. There in Revelation 7, we see the final fulfillment of Zechariah 9. He shall speak peace to the nations. And there's that great multitude, an innumerable multitude, fulfilled and will be much more fully fulfilled on that last day that is described when Jesus rules from sea to sea because of his humble, sacrificial cross. And now the nations are not judged, but they are cleansed when people come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Jesus brings the peace of his salvation to the world. But the warning is, if you do not find refuge in him then he will stand as your judge on that day well two words of application one remember who is the true ruler of the world the people of God living in Judah at that time certainly faced a confusing and difficult time and things did not suddenly change for them there were still 500 years until Jesus would be born But God gave them the assurance that he would send their king, and they looked ahead to Christ. Of course, the early church saw Jesus Christ come, but then immediately they were waiting as well for him to return. The people of God are always called to wait in faith. And so they were called to live in faith in him and in the promises of God. This passage is telling us that God rules this world but we do not see the outworking of his purposes often. And as the familiar illustration goes, we only see the backside of the tapestry God is weaving with his sovereign wisdom in this world. We see the side with all the strings that are sticking out and the tie-offs in the back and not the beautiful side that's supposed to be displayed. But you and I can trust God's wisdom and sovereignty for our lives for the hard things in our lives, for the circumstances of our nation and our world, yes, even in an election year, even with a pandemic, even with whatever it else that's bothering you right now, the Scriptures tell us that not a molecule of this world can be a renegade from God's sovereign purposes. And so remember who the true ruler of the world is, but also, secondly, wait on the Lord and fulfill his commands, live in obedience and faith to him. Here in Zechariah, God has brought the people back to Jerusalem, and he called them to faithfully trust in him and obey him, to return to him with their hearts. And God calls you and me to so live one day at a time. We always want to get out in front, think about multiple days, and worry about what's to come to live one day at a time for the glory of God knowing that our days are in his hands and living for the advancement of his kingdom now. It's interesting in verse 13 and I close with this thought God says I have bent Judah as my bow I have made Ephraim its arrow. God is saying he will use his people as his weapons as his instruments in extending his kingdom. Ephraim Represented the northern tribes. It was the, one of the largest tribes, Judah, the southern two tribes. And they were like, God saying, they're like my bow and arrow, my united people, united in serving their king. This is what God calls his church to to be united in serving him, in trusting him, in loving one another, to serve our risen Savior and telling the good news of the salvation he brings and looking forward to the day when the king will rule from sea to sea. Amen. Father, we are stirred by your word. It shakes us out of our complacency and our focus on ourselves and lifts our eyes to your glory and your power and your king, our God, Jesus Christ. By your spirit, work in us, fan into flame, your work in us. We pray that you would breathe on us as we've sung. We pray that we would be your instruments in the furtherance of the kingdom of Christ, even if it's just ordinary ways that we serve you in prayer, seeking to serve others, telling the good news when we have opportunity to do so. Lord, we give you our lives. May Jesus Christ reign in our lives and in the world. Amen.